Welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. My name is Chris Thompson, your host of the show and the head coach of the Student Works Management Program. This is a show dedicated to young and ambitious entrepreneurs and ultimately the leaders of tomorrow. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you create the future you know you deserve. Let's get started. Hi, leaders. Thank you very much for joining me on the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. I've got an amazing leader who who was part of our program uh, a few decades ago, and uh, he has had an incredible career, lots of up and downs, uh, and just very, very transparent, very uh, vulnerable, very uh, really come back to sort of share real lessons uh, from throughout his career. He, uh, you know, at every step of his, his career has been, been successful. He's been in the uh, manufacturing business in India um, after starting out in Canada. And um, he, he ended up buying a business uh, called Universal Transformers. The business actually grew up to be about $90 million worth of business. And he talked about that growth from 300000 to $90 million, And then had to reset a bunch of challenges around the uh, 2008 crisis, uh, financial crisis. And also as well, not, not just pointing out to the world, world and saying, oh, those were problems, but mistakes that he made and errors that he made and talked about a bunch of the best practice that he's had to really build his career. I know you're going to love this podcast. I certainly did having it with them. And, uh, and again, as you know, I'm out looking for amazing leaders. So if you know any, any of them, please send me uh, an email at chris at leaderspodcast.ca or you can send someone to apply to studentworks at studentworks.com slash apply. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Have a fantastic day. So, Druva, um, it has been a long time. Thank you for, so much for coming and joining us on the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. Well, thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Awesome, awesome. So, why don't we uh, we go back? Um, you know, tell me what you were like before our program. Um, before the student, uh, student the, works, the, student works management program. Yes. Management. Um, well, I mean, I, I was, I was always fairly entrepreneurial, uh, in the sense that I wanted to earn my own money. I wanted to be independent to a large extent, always wanted to have a truckload of cash sitting somewhere. Um, so that was, so that was kind of one of the things that, that drove me. I, I come from a, from a business family, so that kind of dri- uh, drove me as well. Uh, my grandfather and his, his father and all that. So we, we've always had this idea that, that business is the way to, to succeed in life and, and being involved and being owners of businesses were, were, was, was very important. So that was something that drove me from a very, very young age, uh, from probably from the time I was maybe six, seven, eight years old. I think my first... My first real job was was delivering papers, uh, the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, and when I moved to Oakville, uh, in in just just uh, west of Toronto, uh, the Oakville Beaver. So at one point, I think I had three or four paper routes going at the same time. Great. Um, and the idea was just, you know, I was my own boss. Of course, there was a the guy that delivered a whole bunch of papers, and then I had to run around and deliver them, and then collect the money, et cetera, et cetera. 
So those are sort of the first things that I remember about, uh, about wanting to be entrepreneurial, wanting to be in business by myself or for myself. Awesome. Awesome. And do you remember, was there anything that sort of frustrated you before you got started in business? Any sort of big frustrations? Um, since the first businesses that I had, or the, or the first, if you want to call it business, they, they weren't, you can't really call a paper route a business, but, um, I would say that, that one of the things that frustrated me when I, when I really wanted to get into business, which would have been about 14, 15 or 16 years old was, um, just not knowing how to get it started. Like, where do you, what's step one, what's step two, what's step three, what's step four. And at that point, you know, you have no idea that things like uh, process, capital, training, uh, all those things are really, really, really important. You, you just you just don't have any concept of uh, what's in front of you, you know, where you should go, what direction you should take. So, so, so that was very, very frustrating at the initial stages. Yeah. So it's like you want to do something. And, but how the heck do I do something? Right. So it's kind of, you have big dreams, big aspirations, you know, and, uh, it's, what do you do? So, yeah, no, I totally, I totally get it. I totally get it. So, so what do you still rely on from, from the program? I learned a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, like, so, so, so I'll tell you one, one of the things that I've learned and, and I hope that anybody listening will understand this is, is you, you never really learn from your successes. You learn a lot from your failures. <laughs> basically. So you true. That, so true. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically you learn that, 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 okay, this is the wrong thing or wrong decision I took. And, and obviously there's a right decision that is, you know, 180 degrees away from that. So one of the things that I learned in our businesses was, was exactly that. And, and I learned that probably from, uh, from the first house I ever I ever estimated uh, back in the day in, in, in student works, I think I missed the estimate by a couple of hundred hours. <laughs> oh, that's um, so painful. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really, it was really we, painful. We, we don't we don't allow for that anymore. Like our our district yeah. managers are so much more on top of the estimating process. But absolutely, it makes you stronger. Well, it didn't kill you. Well, so tell us well, more. Well, listen, if, if you know. All things considered, then I'd like to send you the bill for that because compound interest—it's—it's <laughs> probably a couple of hundred thousand dollars right now. No, so 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 you very quickly learn uh, that that um, one of the things you got to figure out properly is is costing, and and you need to listen to the guys who who are who are uh, leading you. So in my case, I had a I had a district manager, a uh, very seasoned guy named Paul Pasco. He told me X plus Y equals Z, and I understood that as X minus Y equals B. And finally, <laughs> what ended up happening on my first house was I lost a truckload of money. And it took me, I would say, out of four months in the summer, it probably took me a month to get out of that hole. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a bit disheartening. But, you know, there were, there were a bunch of guys who, who after, I mean, I'm going by memory now, Chris, so for sure, because I'm I'm 30 years down the down the road. I would say that that there were at least 10 or 15 percent of the guys who, who who just couldn't hack it and they dropped out of it because they just didn't get that you know with every with every failure you have, at some point that's going to turn around into success. And and the guys who are able to turn it into success are the guys that have um, the fortitude 
to understand that, you know, success and failure are, are, are basically part of the same coin. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you can't have one without the other. And in my case, I, I mean, I learned the hard way. Uh, unfortunately, it was my first house. I wish it, I wish it was my 40th house, but it was yes. my first house. But, you know, you quickly learn after that. And then, and then you make sure that you don't make the same uh, silly mistakes again and again and again. No, one, 100%. Like, I think, again, one of the things I always like to, to identify is, is, you know, we only have top performers in the program. So top performers are used to winning, get good marks, win at school, win at student politics, win at the group they're involved in, you know, just win, win, win. And so all of a sudden, here's something where, oh my gosh, I got, I got bounced on my butt. And, and you can think about that as a bad thing, but I feel the same way as you. I had a lot of experiences of being bounced on my butt and, oh, there's something that isn't going to work. Great. I, I, there's something that I, I can change. And it's just, you know, rather than just going along and winning, 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 um, you know, it's not an accurate indicator of what's going on sometimes. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Um, there's a very good viral um, WhatsApp or a video that's going around of a, of a psychologist named Simon Simonek. Yeah, Simon Sinek. Sinek. Yeah. Simon Sinek. Yeah. And, and, and he talks about this. He talks about the fact that, that we, we are conditioned or we, we are, we are programmed by our parents and by everybody around us to say that we're amazing. We're great. Yes. Everything is going to work out wonderfully. You're the smartest, you're the, this, you're the, that. And, and the reality you know, really hits you when, when you get into your first job and there, there are 50 other people who have got as, as good marks as you did. Um, they've studied as hard as you have. They've succeeded in X, Y, Z, A, B, C, one, two, three, as much as you did. And, and you realize that, that, you know, the world is really not, um, as beautiful a place as, as everybody before you has made you, you believe, right? Yes. Um, Nobody's going to hold your hand uh, in your first job and say, well, uh, you know, thanks for losing a $40 million on your first trade. Uh, you know, let's go out for coffee. That's not just not going to happen. <laughs> um, that's the reality of it. And, and, and I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we talk to, to the people with us, the people we employ, the people who are a part of our teams when we, when we don't tell them the truth about where they are. And, and the reality of the situation that they're in, which is that, listen, it's competitive. And unless you're competitive, unless you're working hard, it's, it's not going to work, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, it is, it is hard and life's hard and that's good. You know, we both have a bunch of, as we were saying before the podcast, scars to prove it, right? You know, so why don't we sort of walk because we've got a, we've got a way, to, way, to, way to go in your career path. You know, so, so, you know, post, post student works, I know you, you, you know, you had a, a typical first summer, it was really, really hard, but you came back and you really, you know, blew it up that second summer and just did so much better and left with a lot of confidence. What, what did you do then? And, 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 and tell us more about that. Well, so, so, so I would say like the, the, you know, the second summer I had was, was obviously far better than the first summer I had. I mean, you, you, it's not, it, it, it's not that I was, it's not that I lost money my first summer. Uh, I made some money, but the second summer, like you said, I did much, much better. But the nice thing about an, an environment that I had with, with student works, 
at that time. And I'm, I'm sure based on the, based on the success and the continuous success of the, of the program is, is that uh, although I had a success in the second year, there were guys who were uber successful compared to where I was. Um, and, and that, that, that does one of two or three things as far as I'm concerned with people. One is, is it either motivates you to say, hey, look, I can do better. I'm, I'm part of that group, although I didn't do it this year. Maybe next year I can do it. The second type of person I've seen is, is the person that says, well, I'm, I'm kind of happy with what I did and, I, and I'm going to be okay with that. The third type of person is the person that says, this isn't for me. I'm, right. I'm going to go and work for someone for the rest of my life. I'm going to be an insurance salesman. I'm going to be a Xerox salesman, whatever. Uh, and, and I'm not denigrating those career choices. I think those are all great. But, you know, there's a different, there's a different sort of DNA that I see with, with people who are entrepreneurial and, and people who want to move forward. So in, in my case, what happened was post-student works, I, I, um, I actually joined the company for a little while. If you remember, uh, I joined the company post-school post for about six months in the winter. Of That's right. And, and that was interesting, but I, but I realized very quickly that that wasn't my cup of tea. And then I went and worked uh, with another company called Moors the Suit People, selling suits of all things. And uh, that was completely different than where I was earlier with Student Works. But a lot of the stuff that, was, that I had learned within the Student Works program really helped me out. Things like you know, building customer relationships, um, working with people around you. And, and just looking at systems and processes. When I joined uh, Moore's, uh, they really didn't have sales programs or, or, or sales processes for sales executives. The style of, of work in those days, if, if you were selling garments in, in, in Toronto and, and in Ontario or Canada at that point, was basically you'd get a guy off the road, the guy would be fairly well-spoken, um, he would be fairly presentable, meaning he shaved every day, probably wore, <laughs> probably wore deodorant at least once a day um, or once a week. And, and that was the kind of guy that you'd just hire. And then you'd put him on the sales floor and you'd tell him that, look, this, this garment is for sale at X. And everything was kind of sold on price. And I, and I quickly realized that a differentiator here for us was that we had to, we had to sell this thing as an overall service. It, it, it couldn't just be an individual garment. It couldn't just be a suit. It couldn't just be a shirt. You had to look at this thing and say that there were accessories that went along with this. And there was, you know, there was the additional sales, which would, first of all, bring you closer to the customer. And then secondly, obviously, increase your sales. And at that time, I think the sales commission was about 4% on sales. So you, you had to be motivated to figure that out. And, and in my case, what I figured out very quickly was, you know, I'd sell a suit for $300 or whatever, and I, I would invariably sell uh, accessories worth at least 50% of that. Right. Now, what I didn't realize at the time was is that that 50% additional sales, $150 of additional sales, from the company point of view, was actually more profitable than the suits. Um, if you sold a tie for $30, the company's cost on the tie was probably eight. Right. If you sold a suit for three hundred dollars, the company's cost was probably two hundred and fifty. Yeah. So, so they were really happy when you sold a lot more ties and a lot more uh, shirts and stuff like that, right? So I just, so I just figured out that that for me it was just easier to get uh, a customer in and sell them a whole bunch of stuff at the same time rather than you know one of one of one of sales. Um, and that that kind of worked for me. So I, 
I, I was able to translate that into into higher sales. And and uh, at one point, I I think in my first year or towards the end of my first year, I think I was I was pretty much the highest grossing salesman at Moore's um, with less than you know, ten months of experience. And I built up a database of of customers who you know I could call in pre-sales or pre-events and and just tell them look you know this is what's going to happen and this is what we need to do and and that was something that I remember for my student works days was was basically going back to customers and and so I remember I had a customer in Burlington who she asked me to paint her house and um I just for some reason I don't know I just developed a a, a nice relationship with her a good relationship with her where we did right. some stuff like we you know she, she was a widow and, and she just recently lost her husband or something like that. And, and, um, you know, we, we just mowed her lawn. I mean, just, it was just one of those silly things where, you know, it just didn't get done. Right. Uh, so we mowed her lawn. Um, and I found out that she owned something like, like 250 pet stores. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, Whoa. Um, and I think we got a contract to do like, 20 or 20 or 20 pet stores across uh, Burlington in, in that summer, uh, the interiors. And that was just, and it, I mean, at the end of the day, it was, it was a three hour, two hour kind of a thing mowing the lawn. Right. Uh, but it translated into this without intending it, without there being yes. a purpose. You know? Just being a, just being a decent person, right? Somebody yeah, I mean, the so, hand helping out. Yeah. yeah. So that's that, so that's kind of what we realized. That I mean, that's kind of what we realized in, in that summer. And and I realized that going forward, that was kind of one of the things that I wanted to make sure, you know, would always sort of see me through uh, anything that we did in the anything that I did in the future. Anyway, yeah. So at, at, at Moore's, I was able to do that, and 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 that worked for me really well. Um, I got promoted. Well, I got promoted, and you know. Yeah, and I know, I know, I know from from speaking with you, you know, Drew, but you know, you were able to like check this number at $1.5 million worth of business in his last year at the store and earned around $70,000. And this would have been the late eighties, early nineties. That's yeah. just an incredible amount of money. And, yeah. you know, on the other hand, you felt like you had a decision to make. So, so tell our leaders about that. Drupa. Well, so, so, so you get to a point where you just say that, look, money's important and you need money. I mean, anybody that tells you that you can live on, on love and happiness and all that other stuff. Great. Um, you know what? I, I've got all the respect in the world for people like that sort of. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you want to have most people, I mean, I did, I wanted to have a family. I wanted to drive a decent car. I've never had the ambition or desire to drive, you know, the new, uh, Lamborghini or, or right. the, the, you know, the Rolls Royce or anything like that. I, but I wanted to have a decent car. I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world, blah, blah, blah. And that stuff costs money. Yes. At that time, I was not prepared to backpack across Europe and across, you know, China and Japan and all that. You know, to people who do that, I mean, a more power to you, but that wasn't my cup of tea. Right. I, I certainly didn't want to go uh, the style of, of the Donald Trumps uh, sitting right. in private jets and stuff like that. But at the same time, I, I, I didn't want to go, um, you know, backpacking. Five, five, star, five stars good for Druva. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Five, yes. star, five, and it's, star was, it, five star was always, five stars always appreciated. It, it, um, it, and so, it is, it is. And for our leaders, it's, it's, it's worth it to work hard and to have five star restaurants and hotels and experiences. It, it just is. So, yeah. And I'll just tell you a, a little aside about that. So the thing is, is that, is that the five star life is great, 
But the best part about, about being able to afford a five-star life is the ability to say, I don't want the five-star life, right? So, you know, the people who keep telling you about, well, I live a simple life, it's generally because they can only afford a simple life. Now, if you can afford a five-star life and you decide to leave it a simple life, that's a totally different sort of thing, right? Right. So I've been in enough parts of the world where I'm, I'm very comfortable being in a, a two-star, three-star hotel uh, just because I've, I've made contact with the people there. I like the people there. Um, I don't need to eat at a Michelin star restaurant. Uh, no. You know, there's lots of great places all over the world. You, we were talking earlier about, about you going to Italy. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I were in Rome last year, and, and we, we ate at probably – two or three of the best restaurants, which were not Michelin star. In fact, you probably wouldn't even find them on a, on a, on a restaurant guide, but the food was just, just outstanding. I mean, it was restaurants with probably four tables or five tables. Awesome. But the food, food is, you know, was amazing. So I'm just saying that when you, when you get to that level or when you, when you're able to get to that level, you can sort of then decide that, look, um, you know, I don't need to necessarily do this is, is all the point. Um, anyway, so coming back to the story, I guess, um, I looked at, uh, I, I looked at my life and I said, look, I'm earning, I'm, I'm earning fairly well. I'm earning far above the median, but where does this job take me? Like, where do I see myself in five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years? I mean, when I'm 50 years old, am I going to be, you know, selling suits or in the garment industry? Where does that industry, where's that industry going to go? You know? So I was, I, I had some doubts, number one. And number two is I, I, I also wasn't very comfortable with the fact that I wasn't my own boss. I worked for a bunch of people. I had a, I had an assistant general manager above me. He had a general manager above him. He had a vice president above him. Uh, so it was one of those things where, and then there was a president and then there was a CEO. And so, you know, you're like the low man on the total pole. And, 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 and that was not something that I wanted to be involved with. I, I didn't want to be at that level. And again, I think, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that for, you know, two or three years at Student Works, I was my own boss. Um, I did have a district manager, but, you know, I'd see the district manager. I mean, my second summer, I think I think I saw him like once every two weeks. And that was basically to, you know, collect checks, if anything. I, otherwise, I don't think I saw I don't think I saw him at all. So, so so that that was in my mind. And and luckily for me or unluckily for me, one of my cousins who. Who, uh, who lived in, who lives in India came and visited us in Toronto and and he basically said hey look you know the family business in India is expanding dramatically over the next uh, the next few years as we see it we'd like to get you know we'd like to obviously we'd like family members to join the business and and if and if it's something that that you think is something you'd look at you'd want to look at why not uh, why not make a move to india and, and you know you'll have a, a different kind of life and a different type of environment and you'll have different experiences and, and and at some point in the near future you could probably be running a fairly decent sized business right um and that kind of ticked pretty much every box that i that i had it took me Took me a little bit of time to think about it, probably about two or three nights, and and then I I finally moved in November of nineteen ninety two, and uh, frankly speaking, never looked back. Never wanted to come back to Canada. Never wanted to move anywhere else. I'm really, really been really happy here. Right. 
And so, so uh, why, don't, why don't you tell our leaders just about, you know, what you accomplished in that business and, and what, what, what the business did and what you learned? Because uh, I know you really took it to real heights. Yeah. So, so when I came back, I mean, I, 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 didn't, I, I, I didn't have an engineering background. I, and I came back to, to an engineering company. And I mean, a hardcore engineering company, uh, not like a consultancy kind of company, a hardcore engineering manufacturing company. We had, as an, as an overall group, we had close to 20,000 workers, employees uh, in, the, in the organization over, uh, at that time, about 15 primary companies. Uh, we were in everything from uh, electric motors, uh, large electric motors, uh, large electric generators to diesel engines, large compressors for, for uh, air conditioning. Uh, transformers for power, uh, for power and uh, distribution. We were into pumps, uh, manufacturing. We were actually India's largest pump set manufacturer, uh, probably third in the world at that time as well. Um, so we were into a whole bunch of different stuff uh, as, as far as engineering goes. And we were about to sign a joint venture with General Electric from, U- from the U.S. Uh, to manufacture locomotives for the Indian railways. Uh, India has the largest um, railway network in the world, and wow. it just like a smart business to get into, build, building locomotives in India. Uh, we made the engines, we made the compressors, we made the pumps, we made the uh, transformers, we made the electric motors. So it seemed like a natural fit. So we were looking very uh, aggressively at getting into that business. So when I moved back here, uh, the first... The first job I got was actually uh, as a management trainee in my uncle's company. Uh, and the, the company manufactured motors, as I mentioned, transformers and switchgear and things like that. Uh, stuff that I'd never heard of, never knew, never understood. And so I started as a, as a management trainee in the, in the daytime. The shift was uh, 8 o'clock in the morning until 4 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. And then what I did was after that is uh, I worked the third shift, which started at five and ended at uh, eleven thirty. So what I would do then is I would take off my my management or my management trainee outfit uh, uniform, and I would put on the, the 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 uniform of the workers, and I'd actually go and work on the shop floor because I figured I needed to learn and work. And this is something that I learned again, um, not to continuously plug student works, but, but this is something I learned from student works. Um, I remember there was an occasion where, you know, my guys were really afraid of going up on a 40 foot ladder uh, to paint the side of a house. And, and, uh, you know, at some point it has to get painted. I mean, for God's sakes, you've, you've contracted the customer to paint it. So right. you can't just say, well, uh, other than that, you know, other than that 40 square feet, uh, <laughs> we painted everything else. Um, so I, I was finally the guy who went up there and, and stuff like that, you know, it, it, it changes, it, it changes the mindset of the organization. It changes the mindset of the team. And for you as an individual, it really changes your mindset as to what you can get done and what you, what, you know, what you're willing to do to, to, to sort of succeed. Anyway, so, so that was what I did. I worked uh, two shifts, sometimes three shifts. Um, and I finished my training in about, kind of insisted that I finished my training within about six months as opposed to a year. And then I was given responsibility for um, one of the small feeder shops, which was the, uh, the, the sheet metal fabrication shop that we had. It originally employed 
a little less than, I think, 100 people, as I remember. Right. And um, it was also the heart of the union, which was in India is a very, very uh, tricky, very, very politically influenced area. Um, and what I did was I quickly realized that we had too many, far too many people in the organization, uh, far too many people in that shop. So I got rid of about 50% of the people while, while doubling the output. And that kind of got my, uh, you know, the, the senior management looking at me a little differently. Within about a year I was running, or within about a year and a half, maybe two years, I was running the, uh, the transformer business. And over a very short period of time, about four years, I, I pretty much uh, quadrupled sales. Uh, went from a, a fairly small Indian player to, to one of the larger players in India. And because of that, we were able to, uh, I was able to help uh, make sure that we got the largest order ever for exports um, from India. We, we exported pretty close to $40 million to Syria. Right. Uh, back before Syria became a, a problem. Right. Uh, so that was, that was a really, really great time. It was uh, hard work. It was uh, building a team. It was uh, motivating, influencing, cajoling, threatening holding people's hand. I mean, it was a little bit of everything. It was, it was just great. Right. 18 hour days, uh, travel all the time. Um, uh, anybody that tells you that in, in business, you've got a five-star lifestyle, although you, you may be able to get it, uh, with your, with the perks, um, you quickly find out that it's not a five-star lifestyle. You're staying in great hotels, but you're working like a donkey. Yes, it's for sure. Not as much fun as, as it sounds. Yeah. 100%. Hey leaders, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. Since we started this podcast, every person you've heard from has been one of the incredible alumni of the Student Works Management Program. In large part, that's how I got to meet these amazing people and participate in their development. Starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down the path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. Now back to the episode. So you, you, you made an enormous, uh, increase in your, in your, you know, the family business. And, and, and so what did you decide to do next? Well, so, so I, so I worked in the business and I, and I kept getting promoted till until I was, I was the head of the entire, um, the power equipment business, which, which included anything that goes into a power station, uh, transformers, switch gear, cables, stuff like that. So I was, I was the head of that business. And, and after about eight, nine years, I, I got tired of it. I, I had some disagreements with the uh, senior management of the company that is the board of directors on the direction of the company. Although I, although I never sat on the board of the company, I was, uh, I was uh, an unofficial official invitee to the board. And, and I did not like the, the kind of conversations they were having um, I thought that they were fairly um, unethical, right? And 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 to me, that was not something that I wanted to be a part of. 
Um, so one of the one of the great things uh, to, to to people who are listening, um, one of the great things about growing up in Canada and the U.S. or North America, anyways, is that you get a very strong sense of right and wrong. Um, you know, just the small things. Uh, red light means stop. It, you know, red light does not mean go at a stop sign. Right uh, at, at a signal. Right. Whereas as you move further east, uh, past past the what you consider the Western countries, you know those those understandings of red, yellow, and green kind of change. Red in a lot of in a lot of countries means go go right. fast. Uh, green means we don't care, and yellow means uh, move <laughs> move. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So so it, it's just stuff like that 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 um, you know I'd grown up with this idea that that. You know, you lead by example, you, you follow the rules, you follow the law, you, you do, you know, you do the right things. And, and yes. a lot of those right things have to translate down below you. Right. Um, you know, again, coming to student works, it's not that it's not that you could sit back and say, well, uh, I'm going to sit at McDonald's all day while all of my guys are working. I mean, you know, you quickly learn in your, you know, you quickly learn in your first summer that, that the idea of management is is not what you think it is. I remember having to, you know, cancel all sorts of vacations and holidays with my buddies who are going up to the cottage or this and that because because you've got commitments and and you know once you're in it you're in it you can't yep. just say well hey listen guys uh, there's 16 weeks in the summer and I'm going to take a week off to go to you know Puerto Vallarta uh, no that's not going to happen right you know, um. So it was, it was, it was things like that, which, which really bugged me ethically. Um, and I just said, this is not for me. And I, and I, and so I walked out of the business. I, I resigned and I, I moved out about 2000 and I think I moved out in 2001, as I remember, 2000 or 2001. And, um, and I was actually pretty happy. I, I, I walked out of there with my head held eye. You know, we, we had built a, a solid business. Um, it would, it would continue for many, many years. Um, I built a good team of people around me. So my number two guy was able to transition to number one position without any, any interruption. Right. Um, so it was good. I was, I was quite happy with, with the way it went out. Of course I was jobless, but that was sort of, a, <laughs> so what did you, what did you do next? Druva? What was the next venture? Well, I sat around for about three months thinking about what I should do next. And, and I realized that, um, there were two or three things happening around us uh, in in the world. One was one was the internet was really gaining steam. I mean, it was it was uh, it was growing exponentially, and and that was something that was good. The other thing I realized was is that in my in my particular industrial industry, um, there was a, a, a significant barrier to understanding how cost was built. Or how how vendors or suppliers in your organization charged you, and um, I, I had worked by so my family had signed a joint venture with with one of the leading Japanese uh, car manufacturers to manufacture cars in India, and as part of my training, I went to Japan for a couple of weeks and I learned how how these guys did work, and I realized that that theory or that that philosophy wasn't being followed. There was a complete wall between the way a supplier worked and the way the purchaser worked. And typically what would happen is you would say, okay, I want to buy this crankshaft. And the supplier would come back to you and say, well, this crankshaft costs a hundred. And you would say, well, no, that's not good enough. I want it for 
you know, 95. And that guy would come back and say, well, no, I'm going to give it to you at 97. And you would settle at 97. And, you know, you'd walk back thinking, thank God I did a great job. And that guy would say, thank God he did a great job. Right. But underlying that, no one looked at whether or not um, there were inefficiencies in the system, number one. Number two is what was the real cost in the entire uh, structure of this, right? So a friend and I looked at this and we, we basically broke it down and we said, look, there's a lot of stuff in this which makes no sense. So what we did is we set up, uh, we set up an e-commerce site um, and, and the idea was we would put buyers on one side of the table and, and suppliers on the other side of the table and we would do a reverse auction for uh, non-commodity items. So right. non-commodity, uh, you know, commodity items in the engineering industry are things like uh, screws, nuts, bolts, flange, stuff like that. Things that you can buy from pretty much anywhere. Right. Uh, we decided to go for stuff which was going to be a lot more um, engineering intensive, uh, manufacturing intensive, and quality intensive, and, and thereby create a barrier to anybody else who wanted to try and copy our business. And we figured that we had the right uh, guys to do that because we had quality assurance guys behind us. We had process guys with us and we understood what our buyers wanted and what suppliers needed. So we, we hooked up with a bunch of buyers and we hooked up and, and, and then what we did is we went and we went and looked at suppliers and we tried to find guys who we could qualify and, and qualification. If you use the Japanese way of qualifying suppliers, it's not just a bunch of guys who, you know, enroll on an internet website and say, well, we're good. It's right. about actually going to those guys and, and doing a, a detailed quality assessment audit and, and figuring out if these guys actually have the ability to uh, supply you the product that they say they can supply you. So you look into their processes, you look into their manpower, you look into their training, you look into their financials, you look into, into whether they buy materials from, or that is raw materials from, from uh, reputed places or from qualified places and so on and so forth. Anyway, to cut a long story short, what we did is we, we were able to run a significant amount of reverse auctions in the first year, and we saved our buyers on average about 30%. And to put that in some sort of money terms, we, we saved them about 9 million bucks on about $30 million worth of auctions in the first year, which is, about, uh, which is a considerable amount of money. No uh, kidding. To, to a guy's bottom line. I mean, for doing nothing, He's just increased his profit by $9 million a year. Wow. There's no downside, right? You bet. So, so, that, so that went well for a couple of years. Um, we, we, we did well. But what we, what we also didn't realize, we were a bit naive uh, in not understanding and not assuming, uh, not understanding our buyer's profile. Because what we, re what we didn't realize was is that we were creating enemies within these organizations. Um, yeah. And, and, and the guys we were creating enemies with were the purchase guys, right? Yeah. So, so what we realized a couple of years later when we started seeing uh, a diminishing returns was that um, the purchase guys would actually go and, and tell the existing suppliers, hey, listen, um, if you guys don't give us a 10% or 12% discount, we're going to run a reverse auction through these guys. And then you guys are going to be completely, uh, you know, completely in trouble because you may lose the business. Completely. Now, if you're a supplier and your business is, you know, 60% or 50% or 40% one customer, you, you really can't afford to lose that business no matter what. Mm -hmm. right? So it became a self-defeating prophecy at some point. We, we, we realized that we weren't going to 
you know, this, this wasn't, this wasn't scalable and this wasn't, this wasn't going to last. Yeah, um, so we kind of wound that down over a period of time. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of, it kind of like people figure out, you know, and almost professionalize as a result of the business that you created. Okay. We've got to do this differently. You know, like you, yeah. you basically, like it's one of those things where sometimes there, there can be a market opportunity, but it get it gets closed because like you said, it's not sustainable. Okay. We can just yeah. fix this. There shouldn't yeah. be that big a gap. Something's going, something's, something's missing in the marketplace, right? Should be less uh, variable in pricing. So what we really, I mean, what I'm still very happy about that we did was, was the, the five or six big bars that we had um, were, were leaders in the, in the industries they were in. And I think that what we did was we kind of moved the needle quite a bit with everybody within those, within that ecosystem where they realized that, look, it's no longer going to be business as usual. There is this threat in front of you. Um, business is not assured and, yes. and you need to be competitive. I mean, you can't, you know, you, you, you can't just be complacent about it. And I, and I think that was a good thing that we did. Unfortunately though, it didn't translate into cash for us. So that, <laughs> that kind of sucked. Well, hopefully you, you saved some of that first year's money. Um, so, uh, <laughs> well, anybody that knows me knows that that probably didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was, what was next, uh, Druva? Well, so, so around the time that this, this kind of, this uh, business of ours kind of got, um, you know, it, it started running into some headwinds. Um, uh, a friend of mine, an old family friend of mine approached me and said he wanted to sell his business. And luckily for me, he was in the transformer business. And, um, so he said, look, I want to sell this company. Um, I've got no desire to run it, uh, and and I would just want to get out of it. And, and I know that you were in this business. Would you take it over? Would you buy it from me? And um, funny enough, I had approached him when I left my uncle's company. I'd actually approached him and said, "Look, I'll put in some money. We'll become partners, and I'll run this business." And he, at that time, he said, "No, no, no. I don't want to do that." Right. You know, blah 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 blah. Anyway, so fast forward three, four years. So he says, "Now he says I want to sell the business, and would you be interested in buying it?" And I said, right. Yeah, sure. Why not. Um, I bought the business and, um, we basically, um, I think we bought the business in June, 2003 or something like that. If I, if I'm correct, June, June or July, 2003. And we basically, um, so I started with, you know, when I went into the company, it was a very small, very small scale enterprise. I was hardly doing $300,000 a year, uh, $300,000 a year in sales. First thing I did was, uh, what any good management book uh, program uh, will tell you is, is, is get the right guys aboard. And I did that. I, I was able to build a small team uh, of people who were, who were good guys. I had a very good technical guy who, who came with the company. Uh, I hired a very good marketing and sales manager. I hired a very good finance guy. And, um, and I had a good purchase guy. And that was pretty much, pretty much all I needed to start. And we took the business from um, when, when I bought the company. We basically doubled uh, sales every every year for about six years, to the point where in, in six years it was you know it was uh, some years were more, some years were you know 180 percent growth. Within about five or six years, the company had gone from 300,000 to about 25 million a year, and and that was good. And we had we went from having a, a presence in only one city in India to 
having a, a presence all around India. We had offices all around the all around the country. We had an office in Dubai, uh, and we were exporting to every part of the world other than North America, South America, Japan, and Australia. Otherwise, every other part of the world was was uh, we were we were servicing. Right. Or it, it, it went pretty well, I would say. No kidding. Yeah, that's some serious, serious growth. So, yeah, we, and I loved what you had to say as well. And I think it is just such a such a great thought about, again, ultimately it's, it's about building an amazing team and getting people in key areas that really can uh, be specialists in those areas. You know, Druva's not a, a specialist in all areas, right? Obviously you focused on really sales, leadership, management, right? But, you know, those, those are the areas that you focused on and you need other people in finance, purchasing and manufacturing, et cetera, that, that, that can provide those skills. You can't, you can't have them all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, I think the biggest mistake anybody makes and, and, um, and, and I was certainly guilty of this in my first summer student works. I was certainly guilty about it probably throughout a large part of my career until I bought this company was the fact that you you have the ego that you think that you need to be the person who has an answer to everything. Yeah. Um, the 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 old the old uh, axiom that the buck stops here. Well, you know the 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 truth of the matter is the buck should never stop with you. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, at the CEO, managing director, president, whatever level you want, you as the as the head of the organization should probably be the guy that moves the conversation to a consensual decision, if, if at all possible, if, if possible most of the time. There are going to be occasions where you have to say, yes, this is right, this is wrong. Right. But in my mind, if you hire the right team, you very rarely need to be in that situation because they, they know what you need to do. They know the right and wrong, right? And, and I realized very quickly that, that that was important to me with this company because now all of a sudden I wasn't an employee. I was the owner of the company. Um, and it was important to me that the company succeeded because, you know, uh, time was ticking and I, it's not like I was getting younger. Right. Uh, and, and when you're young, you have energy, when you get older, that energy wanes a bit. So you, you know, your priorities change in life. Uh, so it was important that, that, uh, that I got the right guys. And I was very fortunate and lucky that the people that I'd worked with in the last, you know, 10, 12 years or 15 years in India had a good regard for me and I was able to get them on board. Uh, and I'll tell you the, 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 the one thing that I was very, very clear about is that I will not interfere with them. Um, right. decision taken by the technical guy on a standard or uh, a design was unassailable. I mean, you just, there was no question of, 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 you know, overruling him, right. uh, uh, a decision by the CFO on, uh, on, on some, on some decision on whether to put aside X, Y, Z, ABC, not to, not to go in for capital equipment, uh, expenditure that year, whatever. Um, you know, there was no question of that. I, I, I just didn't want to get involved with that conversation or discussion because I figured, you know, this is what you're paying these guys to do. It's important that they do it. And it's important that they have the freedom to do it. Right. Um, and even if they make a mistake, you know, if they make a mistake again, it comes back to the thing. Then at least you know what the right decision is. It's 180 degrees from where the wrong decision is, right? Right, right. So, yeah, so that, so that went well. It, it went well for, for, for a very, very good amount of time. About six years into that, 
we were approached uh, by a bunch of investment bankers uh, to, to look at expanding and selling equity and blah, blah, blah. And, and we went in for, we went in for $15 million fundraise, uh, which was about 26% of the company. And that valued us at, you know, it valued us a little less, or sorry, it valued us post money at close to, close to 75 or $80 million, I think, post money, if I'm right. Right. So that was a big, that, you know, for, for me personally, that, that just stroked my ego. And, and that, that I realized was sort of a, a problem in hindsight. Uh, because at the end of the day, unless you're selling the company, it really makes no difference what the paper valuation is. Correct. Uh, what, ma- yeah. what matters is, you know, what matters is your bottom line. It matters is your cash flow. Uh, what matters is your customers. What matters is your employees. And everything else is just, frankly, it's just, it's just smoke. Right. Um, so we, we, took that, we took that private equity money and we invested it. We bought a company in Canada, um, which manufactures transformers. And um, post the purchase, our sales went from about $25 million to, to close to $90 million a year. And, and that, that was a fairly significant, obviously significant jump, you know, to go from 300000 to $90 million in less than 10 years or, less, you know, in seven or eight years was a, was a pretty big jump. Um, and, 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 you know, from where I was sitting, uh, you know, again, ego playing the part that it did, you know, I, I had delusions of grandeur where, where another five years, we'd be a billion dollar company. Right. Right. Unfortunately, the wheels very quickly come off, (laughs) um, because the minute ego gets into it, uh, you, you really, you really make messes very, very quickly. And then getting out of those. Because at that velocity of revenue, um, any mistake quickly becomes a big mistake. You know, right. There's no such thing as a small mistake or a minor mistake. It's just that the velocity of the, the organization is moving so fast without the backup people, without the people behind you, that you, you, you just can't get out of a mess quickly enough, right? right. Um, so one mess leads into another mess, which leads into another mess, and it just becomes, you know, it spirals out of control. So, so Drew, um, like what, like, like obviously, um, thinking back on it and I appreciate you being so, um, you know, just authentic and, you know, just again, taking full ownership, Hey, my ego got out of control and, and, you know, I, I, I was, you know, so, and not surprising knowing you. So, so, so thank you for our leaders. And it's, again, it's something that we need to monitor as leaders, but what sort of lessons do you take from, from those challenges? What could you have done differently that would have made the difference? Well, I think I think in hindsight, one of the one of the big mistakes I made was was listening to uh, listening only to myself and and my own sort of what I consider true north vision of of, of the world. Right. Right. I was I, I I very quickly became enamored with the lot with the idea that I was you know I was going back and forth between India and Canada probably every forty five days. Um, it got to the point where I was flying on Lufthansa and, and the stewardesses on the flight knew me by name. I mean, you know, hi, Mr. Tallwalker, would you have your gin and tonic? Uh, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I mean, so, so, so you quickly get enamored with that lifestyle, right? And you lose sight of the fact that fundamentally behind this, a, a, a business has to be successful. Right. And behind a business being successful is you've got to have the right guys. You've got to have the right team of people. and you you quickly um, you lose sight of the fact that there are th- the people who are saying no are usually not wrong they're usually right right 
problem is because your ego at that point says, I can't accept no, because I everything I'm doing is right. It, you know, you, you you quickly get into that 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 cycle of of call uh, uh, Jim Collins calls it the circle of doom. Right. Um, you 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 quickly get into it, and 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 you don't realize it until you're actually near the bottom, and then you realize, like, holy cow, I've made you know five mistakes, which have been absolutely catastrophic. Right. Um, in hindsight, what would I do differently? Well, uh, number one is I I I would never cross culturally uh, pollinate an organization. Um, what I mean by that is is that is that if you have organizations running in different parts of the world, it's illogical unless you're two generations, three generations into the organization uh, and the organization has that depth. It doesn't make sense to move a guy from Canada to India, India to Canada, as an example. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just a completely different cultural experience. More. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, but, it's, it's, but it's interesting, Dhruva. Um, I could see why that would be blind to you. Because for you, it's not like, yeah, yeah. you know, like you're very quote unquote Canadian and I'm sure you're also very Indian, right? Just because of your personal life experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you, ex you assume um, that people will be able to adapt and overcome and change. And, and the frank truth is, is that doesn't, that doesn't ordinarily happen unless again, as I said, you know, you're two or three generations into this thing. Um, you've got the depth of management. They've they've traveled the world and blah blah blah. And 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 you know you've got those people. Right. Uh, if you don't have those people, then you know putting guys in in places that they're not familiar with. You know, like like just a very small thing. I mean, this is this is a very small thing. Um, you move a guy from 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 a place like India to Canada. The first thing that the first thing that is completely different is the weather. All right. Yes. In India, our coldest day in, in at least in the south of India, our coldest day is twenty degrees centigrade. Okay, that's right. that's cold. That's when people bring out sweaters. All right, <laughs> um, you know, in, 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 you land a guy from 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 uh, where I live in Bangalore to to Toronto in January, yeah. and all of a sudden he goes from twenty degrees where he's wearing you know t-shirts to to he's you know literally. Uh, you know, he's dying. I mean, literally yes. dying. You know. <laughs> we were, we were in an industry in Canada, our, our transformer industry in Canada was basically the, uh, you know, the, the hydro ones and, and all of the, the electrical utilities. Right. Right. And, and those are fairly older organizations. I mean, those are all rah, rah, Leafs, rah, rah, Canadians, rah, rah, Thai cats, rah, rah, Argos and all that other stuff. And, and, um, our guys would go there from India and they would have no cultural appreciation for any of those things. Uh, and good point. not, not that it's their fault. I mean, how would they? I of mean, course, how, for sure. You know, how could a guy brought up on cricket all of his life suddenly switch over to understanding who Wayne Gretzky is? I mean, yes. you know, like it doesn't happen. Right. Um, so it, it was stuff like that. So, so all of a sudden your guys, your, your, the guys that you think are running your organization are now talking apples while the other guys are talking tomatoes i mean right. it's just completely different so so one of the mistakes i realized that was that uh, uh in in hindsight um the other one as i said was this idea that that you could that i could 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 actually manage the situation by being there more frequently um 
what I realize now is actually I should have actually walked away a little bit more. I should have actually had a far more hands-off approach and, and let the right guys handle it. And when things were going down, take decisions quickly. We can debate that, that uh, everybody has a place on the team. But very frankly, the best teams in the world are, are, are based on not having the guy, that, the, the guy that can't score a goal, the guy that can't shoot a basket, the guy that uh, doesn't know how to skate. I mean, as much as we want to help people, at the end of the day, listen, we're in a competitive environment. Uh, you can try and help them. You should try and help them. You should build programs for those people. But at some point, you got to say, hey, listen, this is not working for us. This is not working for you. Well, it's not working for us. And you got to cut your losses at some point. And you put everybody at risk. You put your family at risk. You put sure. you know, your business at risk, your customers at risk, et cetera. So it's 100%. It, 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 and it really is tough, um, you know, having, having that, um, you know, because it seems so black and white. But no, a C player is somebody you can't have on the team, somebody who can't shoot baskets and you're in basketball. You just can't have that person on the team. And, it's, and, it, and for many, uh, many leaders, it, it's, it's difficult for, you know, I, I imagine, you know, for all leaders, it's difficult. I shouldn't say for many leaders, unless you're something wrong with you, because it's, it's people decisions. You're taking a job away. You're, you're letting someone go. You know, there's a negative impact. And if you don't, then there's going to be even more negative impacts because that person eventually is going to lose their job when the company folds. So everybody's, everybody's losing. It's, it's, it's not making those decisions fast enough that, that can make a really big impact. Well, and, 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 and there's another part of that also, right, is, is, that, is that when you, when you recognize that you've got a C or a D player um, and you don't take decisive action fast enough, and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying you recognize the guy on January 3rd and say this guy is, you know, this person is a D player or a C player. Yeah. And you train them, you coach them, you, you, give them, you give them everything possible to, to, to make it work. So, yes, yeah. assuming all those things, yes. But then, but then what happens at some point is you, you, you actually demoralize the rest of the guys around you, the rest of the guys as part of that team, because they start thinking, hey, listen, I'm, I'm performing at 90, and this person is performing at you know, 43. Yes. Um, that person's earning you know, $50,000 a year, and I'm earning $52,000 a year, and my performance is 2x. I mean, how does that make any sense? It actually works as... You know, the organization at some point is going to suffer, but what immediately happens in that team, as I've realized, is the team suffers. Yes. And, and, and you quickly start hemorrhaging very, very good people because they start saying, hey, listen, there's no worth for me here. Yeah. I don't have a place here, right? This organization treats everybody the same way, whether the guy works three days a week or the guy works five days a week. It doesn't make any difference, right? It's, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting, Dhruva. You're right. If you don't act on bad players, your best players leave. So make a choice, right? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I had that, and I had that, uh, and I had that with when I was managing uh, for two, two and a half summers. I mean, I, I had that as well. And, and you very quickly realize that you can, you, know, you can train a guy, you can train a person, you can do this, you can do that. But fundamentally, listen, some guys, some people in this world are going to pump gas. And, and that's just the way it is. Right. I mean, you know. You're not there to, to find solutions for that. Yes, as a society, we should help them out. We should yes. make sure that they've got a, a coverage. We should make sure they've got, you know, whatever they need. But beyond a point, you can give opportunity. But, you know, there's also something to be said about people looking for opportunity, grabbing the opportunity, doing something with it, you know. Absolutely. So I, so I very quickly realized, uh, and that's right, not quickly realized, I, I, I belatedly realized that that these were some of the things that um, that 
that really negatively affected the way we were working. And then there's the other thing, where, which was that, you know, I, I tried to put my, my finger on just about everything I could when the business started uh, going downhill. I tried to be the finance guy. I tried to be the purchase guy. I tried to be the engineering guy. I tried to be, right. And that was another big mistake because you, you're just grasping at straws. And the ego that you have says, hey, listen, I built a business from X to, you know, 40X. Um, I can do this again. Yes. You know? Yeah. But, but, you, but you really can't. I mean, at some point, uh, it, it's, a bit, it, it's a completely different animal taking um, a small business to a decent sized business, to going to a large business and trying to manage that. I mean, it's, it's a completely different, I, you know, I think it's a mind frame. I, I, I agree, uh, Drew, but you know, when one other thing as well is, is, is for our leaders listening is having again, uh, like it, it and I hope people are, are, are loving the pod in terms of, of, uh, you know, really it's kind of the, the cycles, because there really are cycles. And one of the things I want to point out for people is when you're riding a positive cycle, everything that you're doing is amplified. It's winning, it's winning, it's winning. And so you, you really need to recognize when you're there and put your foot on the accelerator, you know, take, take some money aside, save it, put it aside, because there's cycles that all of a sudden start turning around on you. And I've had a number of occasions in my career where things are starting to turn around. And again, sometimes outside forces, sometimes things I brought on myself, you know, different things, but it's really difficult to turn it around. And sometimes literally you can't. And, and there are businesses where, as Druva was describing, the better I saw it, pull, go walk away, walk away from the, the, the money, walk away from the spend. How can we, how can we, you know, make a decision quickly and effectively to, you know, the, is it tax losses? <laughs> is it, you know, maybe we can make this business radically smaller and, and, and recover pieces of it. But, but it's understanding that you're in a negative loop. And, and, and there's just, you know, because, because that's what Druva was in. It was in this possible, po positive, self-sustaining loop and growing. And then we get it going the opposite way. Yeah, Is that I, fair? You know, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. There's, there's, there's this great, I mean, most, most of the guys who I'm sure listen to this have read about Black Swan events. Yes. And I'm, I'm just in the middle of another book by Jim Collins. And he's talking about this and he says, and, and in it he says, um, the, you know, there's, there's a 1% chance that you'll get hit by a black swan win, but it's absolutely going to happen at some point. And you have to assume that it is going to happen and you have to prepare for that event because you don't know whether that event is going to hurt you or help you. And if it hurts you, it could actually lead to a very, very uh, uh, disruptive uh, effect in, in, in your business, you know? Um, I mean, like in our case, what happened is is the uh, the Lehman Brothers crisis. Uh, when that started, funny enough, it wasn't supposed to really affect India as much um, because it was a U.S. based issue and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what 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 we in India didn't realize was that Lehman Brothers actually had a fair bit of exposure into India, and when they pulled money out of India, that created a huge problem in real estate, which yeah. had a you know which affected cement, it affected steel, it affected you know, uh, consumer goods like uh, uh, dishwashers and, and, and refrigerators and air conditioning and fans and lights and everything like that. I mean, it, it, it's just a, it, it's a cascading effect, uh, a negative cascading effect, 
which really, really hurts very, very quickly. You just have no idea how quickly this can hurt until you're in it. And then when you're in it, you're like, oh my God, I'm in quicksand or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a whirlpool going down and I, I've got no way to go out, get out of this. Yeah. Um, and to catch and, and, up, Druva, well, just, I wanted to make sure that I caught up for our leaders. So what Druva's referring to is the 2008 financial crisis. So Lehman Brothers went out of business. The, the market economy, as it's known, really got totally restricted. And, and, and a lot of people, again, didn't see the impacts for India. And Druva's talking about how that massively impacted his business. So please go on, Druva. Yeah, and 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 I mean, not just my business. I mean, it affected yes. just what every, every business in the world, right? Uh, it changed. It changed the fundamental structure of of the financial markets. So it's it, it's things like that that you you can't anticipate, you can't uh, you can't plan for, but you know that they're going to happen. And 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 you know, you 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 brought up a very good point earlier, Chris, where you said, you know, when times are good. You got to save, 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 save. Yeah. Um, it's not always going to be, you know, a, a, a rosy, rosy future. Yes. Um, and that was another mistake that we made was that we didn't save, 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 save. We we actually, myself personally and the company, um, we didn't save, save, save. And and that's the thing that I would, I, that's something that I would tell any any entrepreneur, any business leader. I would I would tell them very strongly: put aside a slush fund. Yes. Keep money aside. Um, stick it in a you know in a term deposit. Stick it in a GIC. Put it in a fixed deposit. Whatever form of savings that you cannot touch it for a year, whether it's two percent of your profits, three percent of your profits, one percent of your cash flow, have something that says that that I can pay my employee salaries for three months, six months, nine months, one year, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, you you know you'll you you can determine that based on your business. Because the worst part of business is being able to is is having to worry about where your payroll is going to come from next month or the month after that. Yeah, um, and I've been in that situation, and I can tell you, it's it it leads to very 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 um, difficult days, difficult nights, sleepless nights. Um, you know, you wake up in cold sweats, and that's not something you want to go through. Um, yes, you know. So that those are kind of, so those are the kinds of things we went through when we went when we kind of hit the wall. Um, we didn't really hit the wall as much as the wall fell on top of us, but anyway, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we, we eventually, um, we eventually had to close the, the company in Canada and then we, we reduced, we, we actually downsized our entire business in India. And there was, there was a point in, uh, there was a point in time where I, I actually thought to hell with this, I'm going to move on to something else. This is not working. Um, and then there was just something in me which just said, like, I, I, I can't just, I can't just, you know, put up my hands and say, well, that's the end of it. I, I got to figure a way through this. Right. Um, you know, there were, there were employees who, who depended on, on the company, uh, suppliers who depended on the company. And I couldn't just be the guy that said, well, it's just easier for me to move on. Um, right. So, you know, we, we closed the business of Canada, as I mentioned, we, probably cut down the India company by 50, 60%. Went back to probably 2008 or 2005 or something, I think, uh, in terms of top line. And, um, and now we're, we're sort of back in, we're back in, we're back in growth mode, slowly right. but surely. Uh, this time, hopefully, now I'm going to make the same mistakes again. Well, yeah, and, and, and I get it, you know, and it's, it's always easier in, in reflection. 
You know, it just, it just is. And, and one of the things about, you know, for our leaders is, you know, um, you know, do you want to take the types of challenges on that, that the people on this pod do? Because again, as, as Druva reflected on sleepless nights, sometimes, you know, waking up in cold shakes and that's not alcohol or drug induced. That's, that's stress induced, you know, like that's, that's sometimes what happens. You know, and uh, it's taking on that responsibility because really, again, you're responsible for the lives of many, many people. So, well, um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's not just the lives of the people around. Uh, I mean, yeah. you work with you, work for you. It's also the people that you love. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, I've, I, I've been blessed to have uh, to have a, a wife who loves me and who understands me. And and unfortunately, I probably didn't listen to her enough because, you know, she sees she's been seeing stuff around me and she she's got a fairly unbiased view of stuff. And, and I'll tell you another thing that I learned out of this, when you're asking me about learning, um, the person closest to you will always give you an unbiased view. Yes. Um, and even if you don't want to hear that view, even if you don't appreciate that view at the time, the point of the, ma- the point of the matter is um, that person probably has, is probably making the right judgment uh, because they've got nothing invested in it other than you. Right. Um, they don't care about the company beyond a point. They don't care about, they don't see the employees beyond a point. They're looking at this thing and saying, Hey, listen, what's best for you, the person beside me. Um, and, and a lot of times, um, I wish I'd listened to my wife, um, yeah. because she was right in hindsight. Yeah. And I can tell you that if you don't have that kind of a partner, uh, something's wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. uh, you, if the person besides you not telling you what's wrong, um, something's wrong with their relationship. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> I hope I'm not. Uh, I, I no. hope I'm not reading any work for divorce lawyers. But uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, no. I think no. I think you're so right. And again, there is a real special spot. The person beside the person making decisions is plays a really key role. You know, as a as a mirror for that person. So because they're not looking at it, you know, because they're not looking at it as, as, as a business. They're, they're looking at you as an individual and what's best for you. They're looking at the family mm-hmm. and, and these are all important things. Like you can't, you can't be on a point as an entrepreneur, as an owner of a business, separate out your personal life and your business life. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, those things are interrelated as your business does better. So does your family's, you know, personal financial, uh, state get better. hundred um, percent. As it gets worse, you know, you know, that has an effect. I mean, you know, all of us want our kids to go to school. All of us want our kids to get into good universities. We want our kids to be successful. We want our kids to inherit a, a fair bit of money at some point so they don't have to work as hard as we do, maybe. Um, you just have to, you know, you, 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 you've got to figure out uh, how to have the ability to listen to the person beside you and, 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 and take it for what it is and, and just listen, you know? Absolutely. So, so Druva, if someone wanted to do what you've done, you know, and the, and obviously the good things you've done, but that's also what we've been teaching. Hey, we're going to do some great things. We're going to do some stuff that didn't work. What key habits would they want to steal from you? I would say that I, I would say, first of all, is lead with passion. I mean, I mean, do things with passion. Don't, don't do stuff um, for money. Right. Uh, money, money will come at some point and, and, you know, you'll be happy in, in whatever you do. Um, lead, lead by lead with passion and lead with integrity and ethics. Uh, when I first, when I first bought uh, this company uh, from my friend, uh, many, many years in 2003, one of the first things I did was I realized that the people who were working there were underpaid. 
Um, so we basically, we went in, in, in June or July. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I don't remember the exact date, but I think it was right. June. I think it was June. Um, the next month we pretty much doubled everybody's salaries because we realized they were underpaid. Right. And it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't to make them happier that we were taking over the company. It was just because it was wrong that they were being underpaid. Right. Um, and, 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 uh, I'm a big believer that, that, that most normally adjusted human beings know what is right and what is wrong intrinsically. Right. Right. Uh, if you know that something is wrong, fix it. Right. Uh, you know, do, <laughs> do the right thing. Even if it costs you a few bucks up front, it doesn't matter. Do Absolutely. the right thing. Up front. Lead with integrity and ethics, lead with passion. I mean, do the things that you, that, that you like. The, the, the other thing I would say, um, you know, again, uh, if, if people were, were to take something from me out of this, I would say is, 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 uh, Decide what your sweet spot is and, and don't move too far from that sweet spot. I'm a very good sales marketing guy. I'm a very good people person, especially yeah. with clients. I'm absolutely terrible with finance. I'm yeah. absolutely terrible with the nitty gritty operations. Yeah. And the minute you try and be the jack of all, you can absolutely assure yourself you're going to make a hash of it. You are going yeah. to make a mess of it. Yeah. So don't even try, you know, yeah. get the right people there, listen to them. And if they're not the right people, you'll know right away. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the way that you'll know right away is, is that they say yes to you all the time. The guys <laughs> who keep saying yes to you, they're the guys you want to get rid of first because they are the people who are not going to help you. Yeah. Um, you want to have a bunch of guys who say, a bunch of people around you saying no. Yeah. Drew, because, we're going to go in this direction. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, because you, 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 you need to have the guys that say no, uh, if everybody's saying yes to you, you know, you're basically, uh, you're basically, uh, you know, um, you know, you're, 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 uh, you're a king. Um, yeah. and you can basically guarantee yourself the guill you know, the, the guillotine. <laughs> great, great analogy. So one final question, when you think of a leader of tomorrow, what comes to mind, Driva? When I think of a leader of tomorrow. Um, I would say fundamentals of business haven't changed. Um, you know, you've got to worry about, uh, you've got to worry about your customers. You've got to worry about cash flow, profit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say that the, the one thing that I, that I keep running into right now, and I'm facing this right now is the pace of change of, of education. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I was saying that at my age, I'm 52 now, uh, I know almost nothing about AI. And that right. worries me. Right. Um, and, and, and I think that somewhere in the last 10 years, I've taken a stupid pill because I just have not kept up. I mean, I, I think, Chris, you and I were talking about this earlier Correct. about yeah. about social media. And, you know, I, I've got no idea how to use a bunch of stuff. Right. Um, that's the easy stuff. That's like the salt and pepper on, on, on the steak. Um, the fundamental truism, I think, today is, is that the world is moving so fast that if you don't keep up with what's going on around you in terms of technology, uh, you know, artificial intelligence or, or, or you know, learning systems and learning programs, I, th I think you're going to be at a substantive disadvantage compared to your competitors. Um, it's, it's just changing too fast uh, to, to understand, that, at least at my age. 
Yeah. Um, so I think the successful leader of the future is going to be the guys that understand this. And sorry, I'm saying guys, when I say guys, I don't mean men. I mean, I do the same thing, Druva. Yes. So no. <laughs> and then I, then I, then I catch myself. So 100%, you know, yeah, uh, male and females, uh, leaders of, of the future need to look for learning 100%. And, 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 and also as well, like, you know, making sure as you, as you age, continuing to go back and, and, and stay ahead and stay abreast. And I know Druva has, by the way, just Druva, one thing Druva's done is belong to YPO, Young Presidents Organization, which one of the world's best leadership organizations in the world, huge focus on leadership and learning. So, uh, so and, and, you know, Druva's pointing out one area where, you know, he, he needs to do some work. And I'm sure once he's pointed out, he'll, he'll recognize it and spend some time on it. So, yeah, and, 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 and I'll tell you another thing that I did also, Chris, was a couple of years ago, I realized that I was, again, falling behind the curve in a lot of stuff in fundamental business issues. And, and um, so I, I enrolled in, in a program at, at Harvard. Mm. Uh, it's, called, it's called OPM, uh, Owner, President, Manager. And, um, and it's, it's a three-week program uh, that you do for three years. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, they, they have about 900 so now they have about 1500, 1500 applicants and they only pick about 190 every year. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a, it, it, it's like a, it's like a business one-on-one course. It, it go, takes you back to fundamentals. And, and I think as your career goes on, it's really important to, I mean, forget about Harvard. I mean, you can go back to Harvard yep. if you can, but you know, there's all sorts of other schools that have this executive learning programs. Yes. And I strongly recommend that that every maybe three years, five years, ten years, whatever is convenient for, for people, is go back to school for you know three weeks, get out of the rug race. Uh, sorry, yeah, get out of the 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 rat race and just just get back to school for two or three weeks, uh, every three or four years, and and you'll you'll come out a different person. I mean, it just resets your it just resets everything in in, in what you believe and what you think, you know. Well, fantastic. And you learn something. <laughs> I, I, no, I can't agree more, Dhruva. And, and, and so I just wanted to thank you so much for spending time uh, with us on the Leaders for Tomorrow, uh, Dhruva. Um, uh, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Hey, leaders. I hope you enjoyed this episode. By now, you are aware that we work with ambitious students every single year to not only help them run their first successful business, but to further their development as a leader and give them an unfair advantage in the future over their counterparts. It's why starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down their path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. And I can't wait to see you on the other side.